welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along. This is going to be a great show, and I hope that you saw the title and clicked into this. And if this is the first time you've checked out this podcast, I encourage you to look at our catalog and all the things that we've done before, more than 150 interviews with interesting people who are studying interesting subjects, and we are trying to get more to the story, get to that story that is deeper. And today, we're going to be looking at this book, Cultural Christians in the Early Church. But before I introduce my guests, I want you to know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And this is an exciting moment in our history as we have more students than we've ever had. We just have added 350 students through the Global Methodist Church's Course of Study program, in addition to dozens of the other denominations that we serve through our seminary. We would love for you to check us out at WB where we have a host of lay initiatives, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees. So check us out at wbs.edu. And this podcast is also brought to you by Bill Roberts, who's a financial planner who helps people, particularly those in ministry who are trying to calculate things like their housing allowance and who need to think about retirement. And they're generally people who don't think about retirement. And he does a great job of helping people with that. So you can find out more about him at williamhroberts.com. And at my website, andymillerthe3rd.com, that's andymillerii.com, there are several resources available for people there. If you sign up for my email list, I will send you a free tool called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. Now, that doesn't mean you get out easy, but it is a tool for you to study scripture more inductively with the aim of finding a creative way to present to your congregation. So I'd love to share that with you as a 45-minute teaching, like a video teaching and a tool that you can use along the way. And you'll find two small group resources there. They're video courses. One is on the book of Jude, and another is a study, a theological study of the doctrine of the afterlife. And it's five sessions. I'd love for you to check that out at andymillerthird.com. All right. I am glad to welcome into the podcast Nadia Williams, who is a military historian of the Greco-Roman world, and she's a book reviewer at Current. She's taught at institutions in the past, has several books out, has written for a variety of periodicals. Nadia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We have, I've had on, uh, you know, I've had 150 interviews, but I've never had mm. A military historian. How exciting. I'm so excited. I've never <laughs> talked to somebody who probably, I, I have some Old Testament scholars who do some military history, conquest, that type of stuff. But it's fascinating. I'm curious how you got into this field. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So uh, I started uh, undergraduate uh, knowing that I wanted to major in classics and I really loved Virgil. And then the first uh, class that I took in ancient history, uh, I was hooked and I knew that I still wanted to study the classical world, but I really wanted to study history. And I had a fantastic professor, Ted London, who was a military historian, and I took a lot of classes with him. And by the time I got to graduate school, I knew that that's the area I wanted to study. Uh, and really, military history in a lot of ways is the best way to understand the ancient world, because it was a really just a very warlike place. Uh, yeah. And it's both in an exciting way. I mean, a lot of times when we think military history, we think like, oh, the cool battles. But then right, you also right. think like, what does this say about how people thought about personhood and just kind of human yes. life and humanity? And that's where studying the early church and uh, bringing this background as a military historian has actually been very helpful in seeing the differences in worldview. 
Yeah. So it's not like you only study, you know, battles and what's happening there. I'm sure that's a part of it. And, and I've even seen some of your other articles, even a recent article you had where you led into it. I'm just going to go ahead and highlight the one that I that I saw uh, talking about the catapult. And I you, mm. you got my attention, right? Like thinking about what the catapult does. But then in this article, and, and you're probably had in mind some of the events that are happening we're we're recording this in october 2023 and some of the challenges that civilians are being like killed sadly in israel and gaza and all these things that are going on and and so you got me in with the catapult but then thinking more deeply about what it means to be people created in god's image and and, and kind of like thinking through even concepts within just war theory within that so like even just in this short probably 500 750 word article i see that emphasis now you have an interest in some of the things that are happening too in israel in in gaza i, I know that's or on the talk about but tell us a little bit why that's interesting to you i was born in uh the soviet union Uh, when there was such a thing. Uh, And when I was almost 10 years old, right before the Soviet Union collapsed, my family immigrated to Israel. So I grew up in a secular Jewish home first, again, in Russia, then in Israel, and moved to the US when I was in high school. And uh, so right now, it's been really eerie, disturbing, like, you know, put in like all of those adjectives to see things. First, the Ukraine war. My my mom grew up in the Ukraine uh, and now uh, in Israel and seeing that a lot of the same people groups have been suffering from both uh, the rampant anti-Semitism and just the horrific attacks on civilians. Um, It's just really troublesome and whatever side you take the whole point is god sees every person made in his image and seeing those kinds of attacks on civilians uh in particular is really like that should worry us and disturb us as people who um appreciate god god's creation of humanity that's yes absolutely and and so as we're like thinking about this like sometimes as you highlighted in this other article which i'll post a link to by the way um there's a way that the just war tradition uh, can just easily kind of say, well, this just kind of happens sometimes. And so I appreciate you highlighting that there are consequences that come even from military technology that are unexpected. Now, now you indicated like growing up in a secular Jewish environment, but you're a Christian now. So can you tell us a little bit about your conversion to Christianity? Yeah, I came to Christ as an adult. I was uh, 30. And it was one of those things where um, all of my life, uh, and you probably hear about this with immigrants, especially with immigrants from places like Russia, uh, where academic excellence is kind of your God, basically. And the whole idea that was drilled into me from young age is like, obviously, you have to make really good grades and your life will go great. Uh, And then when I was 30, I landed, I just landed a tenure track position. Um, So in some ways, it seemed like my life was going well, but uh, other things were not. And I was suddenly realizing kind of, I call it deconstructing my unbelief, um, that I was realizing um, that um, I was looking for something. And eventually that uh, a period of uh, many months of reading led me to Christianity. And uh, yeah, any any particular book that was helpful along the way? I knew you said many months. I imagine many books too. But- Absolutely. There were. Um, ultimately, what uh, was really just convicting to me was reading the Gospels, just okay. reading through all four Gospels and realizing like this is true. Um, wow. It was just 
one of those one of those things that like as rational, you know, 21st century people, it's really awkward to talk about those moments when you feel like something, an external force takes over um, completely. And that's what it felt like, just a moment of conversion. Um, not everybody has one, but I definitely felt one. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm interested, this book that you have this come out, coming out through Zondervan, probably about the time that this is um, being released, um, is a, a really great cover, by the way, too. But I'll just read the title again, Cultural Christians in the Early Church. Now, those, those phrases don't normally go together. We're going to talk about that. Uh, a Historical and Practical Introduction to the Christians in the Greco-Roman World. And on the cover is a golden chariot kind of in a cartoony type of way. And then there is a license plate, a modern license plate that says WWJD. And so this is fascinating to me. And, and this cap encapsulates me your thesis in a way. So, so tell us, uh, how does this like history of yours then fit in to this book? So the entire uh, time that I was writing this book, I was living and teaching in the Bible Belt, where obviously everyone goes to church on Sunday. But yeah. uh, the problem is what happens the other six days of the week? And that's the co concept of cultural Christianity, where for a lot of people, there's this like cultural tradition that, yes, we go to church on Sunday, but there isn't necessarily an expectation that this is something that permeates every aspect of your life. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. for plenty of people, obviously it does, but not everyone. Uh, so in the Bible Belt, uh, you do see that cliche of cultural Christianity. And a lot of times we think that obviously this is the sort of thing that can only happen in the modern world and only in a culture that is very much like saturated with um, church going and everything connected to church. And my point is, um, in reality, if you look closely already at the New Testament um, and other stories from the first several centuries of the church, what you see is that even people for whom um, it costs something to be a Christian in a hostile environment, um, even so, the allure of culture was always really um, just there because you can't you can't help it. All of us are products of the world we live in, and Christianity yes. has always been a counter countercultural religion. But the problem is, it's always really difficult to swim against the tide. Yes, this is so interesting because our picture often, and I'll say like probably mine too, has been to look at the early Christians and the early church through um, a hagiographic lens. Like, so we think how wonderful they were. They, they went and they sacrificed themselves to lions on, you know, and they stood up for their faith and said, Jesus is Lord. Even that meant that their life was at stake. And, and that was true in many cases. But yeah, you highlight that the fact that no, well, that's true. But there also was this pull back to the world in the midst of this. So you have, uh, hence, the cover of your book has this golden chariot, yet they're still saying, what would Jesus do on the back of it? So we anachronistically, so we take our time and we insert it back onto another period inappropriately. And so the cover of your book does that too. So this interesting to me, why is it? I mean, what is, what's the picture that most people have in your view, as you've been thinking about this period of early Christians and, and, and what's wrong about it? So I think a lot of it is just the problem of evidence. 
okay. like you were saying, the hagiographic lens, because we can name actual martyrs. We have names. We have stories, really vivid stories of very graphic, horrific suffering and executions. Yeah. And all of them are true, except there are all these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of nameless multitudes who were part of the early churches. And the whole point is they're nameless multitudes for a reason. The average people, just like today, you know, if you were to try to write the story of any congregation today through just like somebody famous, um, it's not going to be necessarily representative of every person in the pew on Sunday. And right. that's the point that I'm trying to get at. So you have these like so-called, um, and I guess in some case justifiably, uh, heroes of the faith, but you also have all of these people who are struggling with what does it mean to be a Christian in the day-to-day? -day? How do you interpret all of this? Um, and so letters, uh, so for example, like Paul's letters to the early churches in the New Testament were a treasure trove of information for me in this regard, because you get you get those uh, letters that at times are pretty like serious rebukes. Yes, and yes. you realize like these are people who are struggling, like in Corinth, you have a city that is very much a pinnacle of Greco-Roman culture. Um, so no wonder that people in the Corinthian church are very much culturally like very distinctly culturally Greek. Uh, yes. And here they are trying to live this new life and are struggling with figuring out like, well, what kind of things should we just not do anymore that everyone <laughs> else around us is doing? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that like, when you think about the challenges in Corinth, uh, just mm -hmm. last week, we I had um, Dr. Robert Gagnon on, who's an expert in human sexuality. And he kind of emphasizes too, like, there's this issue that is very analogous to our current situation that uh, with the incestuous man in first Corinthians 15. And I often try to say to pre people and I try to get um, students that I'm training in preaching to think about that, even though these letters are very rational and they're describing things of uh, like in, in the, it has this letter, this rhetorical form in it. There's a whole story going on behind this letter. Is there anything that surprised you? I mean, and also you come to the New Testament not as a cultural Christian, not as somebody who was raised in it with a WWJD bracelet like me. What are some of the things in even in scripture that gives us a, a hint of what's happening and, and how there are cultural Christians even in the New Testament? I think the most helpful thing for me in reading these letters was coming to it as a classicist with my okay. background in Greco-Roman literature and recognizing a lot of the echoes of Greco-Roman culture that Paul probably also noticed. So like the whole idea of singling out uh, the man who's having a relationship with his uh, stepmom, right. uh, that kind of incestuous relationship. There are several stories in Greek mythology that relate to that. So okay. for example, you might think of Oedipus who marries his mom without realizing it. And I'm sure yeah. Paul's original audiences were thinking like, this is bad. Um, okay, so you said Oedipus, I say Oedipus. So, okay, but it's either Oedipus. One. Okay, got it, got it, okay. No, either I one I wanna is learn correct. the right pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard both. Okay, that's, okay. That's totally fine. But the, the whole point is we have this really famous, one of the most famous tragic heroes uh, or anti-heroes, if you want to call it that, who had been through that kind of situation, except in his case, the mitigating factor was he didn't know what he was doing. But here's, uh, but here's a situation where somebody does know that this is incestuous. And yes, that's yes. kind of why Paul is 
dwelling on this in such detail that this is somebody who is following the culture, except he is doing something that even the Greeks knew was wrong. Wow. So it's like wow. making it doubly bad. Yes. Interesting. I want to read this, uh, the introduction, the very first paragraph of your book. Is that all right if I do that? I hope Absolutely. I'm not giving too much away. This is, no, this is a great it. one. So it, you say in the middle of the third century CE, a North African bishop wrote a treatise for the women of his church, exhorting them to resist such culturally normalized yet immodest behaviors in their cosmopolitan Roman city as mixed Ba public bathing in the nude and wearing excessive amounts of jewelry and makeup. Okay. That sounds kind of r relatively like something that if that was happening in my church, I might speak out against, but then it goes a little further. The treatise appears even I'm, I'm quoting you again. The treatise appears even more striking. Once we realize that the scandalous ladies to whom it was addressed were single women who had dedicated their virginity to Christ. We're talking in effect about nuns. I mean, it's a, this blew me away. Just read this first paragraph. I'm saying this is going to be a great book. And we're talking about nuns who are dressing with or not dressing at all. And we're doing all this extravagant, even nuns kind of in this sense, were culturally cultural Christians like being impacted by their culture. Well, yeah. Uh, and in this case, uh, I do clarify that like we are talking about nuns, although the concept of, of nuns right doesn't quite exist yet. But the whole point is these are women who had dedicated their lives to the church, to serving Christ. Um, they're supposed to be living holy lives. And yet, even in the midst of that, they can't resist the Greco-Roman kind of traditions. Because in the Greco-Roman world, uh, how you dressed, for example, so, I, so the idea of excessive jewelry and makeup, that was a status symbol. You are showing mm -hmm. off that you are well off and that was expected of you. You're going to represent your family wealth. Um, and the, the whole point is like, you're not supposed to be doing this if you are God's daughter now. Wow. It's so interesting. So I'm so thankful that obviously this bishop spoke out against that. And I'm sorry, I left off that last clause. I just want to make no, sure we no. know that, that that you said that indeed. I, yes. I I stopped at the word nuns, albeit before the concept fully existed. Yes, I just yes. want we, we we get that, folks, in case you're wanting to be picky. Um, now, who do you have in mind with this book? I mean, obviously, yeah, you you have an audience particularly in mind. There's certainly people have heard of the concept of uh, going after cultural Christianity. It's an easy target for a preacher, but who do you have in mind? People in the pew. I really okay. just, uh, I want the average kind of church going Christian who is trying to figure out like, where do I belong in all of this? What kind of world am I living in? Because all of us feel right now, um, granted in every period of world history, people feel like this is just not going well. Uh, but there's just so much anxiety right now, the last few years. I mean, we've just lived through a pandemic that depending on like your health and all of that, you might still be feeling ramifications of it. Uh, right. There are massive wars going on that might suck all of us into it. Uh, political front is not looking too good either. So th there are just so many reasons to feel anxious right now and to wonder, like, how does the church fit into it? How do I as a Christian fit into it? And all of these things are right and good for us to think and pray about because, I mean, we'll, that's the whole, like, live in the world but not of it. But that's, again, also the challenge of living in the world but not of it is thinking, like, how do I fit in this culture? And sometimes it's easier to think about these questions through a historical perspective. 
through thinking of how other um, Christians have dealt with them instead of just like hammering us uh, predominantly. Yes, that's so helpful. Again, I'm friends, I'm talking to Nadia Williams, Dr. Nadia Williams, who's written a book called Cultural Christians in the Early Church. Nadia, your first chapter is interesting to me. It's called More for Me, Less for Thee, The Curious Case of Sharing Without Caring in the Early Church. So what's going on here? Is it Was this a bit of a problem? So the first chapter uh, looks at Ananias and Sapphira as our kind of earliest really well-documented example of cultural Christians. And I'm okay. looking at that problem of sharing without caring. So the idea, um, so Ananias and Sapphira, we hear about them in Acts. So here's this church in Jerusalem where everybody decides, you know what, there will be no needy people among us. We're going to share with everyone. We're going to just eliminate poverty. Here's this like ideal society. Um, it's like move over Marx. Uh, yeah, the Christians yeah, sure. are in town. But the <laughs> But the point is, like, we right away see that it doesn't actually go quite so ideally, um, precisely because, uh, well, there's human greed. And and particularly what I'm looking at here is cultural influence. So for Ananias and Sapphira, part of the reason, so they sell uh, some property and they donate some of the proceeds to the church, except they had promised to donate everything, but they withheld some of it. And that turns out to be their undoing. Um, and the question is, what were they thinking when they were doing this? And, and looking at their motives, I'm looking at Greek and Roman ideas about property and benefactors. So mm. in a Greco-Roman world, it was pretty common for wealthy people to sponsor some good public works in town. And you really expected everybody then to recognize you as a benefactor, to praise you in all kinds of extravagant public ways. Uh, think statues to you dedicated like in the town square, uh, inscriptions with names celebrating the uh, benefactor and so on and so forth. And that's the baggage that they're bringing with them to this rather than thinking we love our brothers and sisters. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the disconnect that we see between what they should be thinking, the motive, and what they actually are thinking, where their cultural baggage, the cultural values lead them completely astray. Yes, this is really helpful. You walk through several examples within the early church and thinking about the issues of of food and wine and like what sacrifice to idols. But I, I want to get to kind of some of the period that maybe that people might know not as, as much about in the second section where you think about the age of persecution. And so in there, you, you talk about how these cultural sins were part of the way, kind of like the gateway of sorts to apostasy. And you tell a few stories in there. I'd love for you to pick one of those and tell us a bit about that. So we have uh, this really fascinating story about the church uh, at Bithynia, uh, and what I love about that particular church is that we have information about it from the New Testament. First Peter involves that particular church, but we also have pagan sources. So in particular, Pliny the Younger was governor of Bithynia from 111 to 113. And we have this fascinating letter that he wrote to the Emperor Trajan saying, well, so I have these people called Christians in my province. I have no idea what exactly they are but i'm pretty sure this is bad news and so he okay. walks trajan but this is great for us because this this is one of those like amazing primary sources 
and I'm so glad it survived because he walks us through the history of this church. So he tells us how he interrogated a number of people from this church, um, but also people who were reported. So he got an anonymous denunciation of like, these people are Christians, and he started questioning them. And it turns out that some of them had apostatized um, decades mm. before in some cases. So we kind of get, but as a result, we can kind of piece together the story of this church, because if there are people who have left that church uh, as long ago as 25 years earlier, that brings us to the late first century. So we know that the Bithynian wow. church already was around, was flourishing, but also there was a high rate of apostasy and the question why. Uh, and that's where First Peter can be really helpful in putting together that story. So the warnings about uh, churches uh, not mismanaging their people, like being kind to their people instead mm -hmm. of um, just a petty rivalries. And we have hints of those kinds of petty rivalries, uh, even in this whole idea of anonymous denunciation of Christians. I'm pretty sure that whoever turned people into Pliny, um, for that person to have known who exactly all the Christians were, this has to be an inside job. Wow, interesting. So, what type of so so you're you look at it from the perspective of seeing all right, there are these things that happen that indicate even if it's more uh, just almost indicative or just on the quiet implicit. I mean, on the other mm -hmm. side, that there needs to be like two sides to what's happening. If there are people who apostatize and if there are people who turn them in, then there needs to be people who are aware of what happens. Now, how is that a cultural sin? Then for those people who turn them in, is that is that what you're alluding to? Well, absolutely, it is a cultural thing because you're not uh, you're not following Jesus's teachings about uh, staying with your brothers and sisters through persecution. Right. Instead, you're thinking like, what can I get out of this? Uh, probably like cultural uh, advancement, possibly like some sort of perk from the governor who just came into town. Okay. So you see all kinds of. Uh, choices, people who decided that, well, maybe I tried converting to Christianity, but it's not working. I'm going to try to um, get something out of it now because I have this inside knowledge. I know who all the Christians in town are, which is kind of secret, secret information. Otherwise, these are all people who are not necessarily worshiping in the open. Uh, that chapter in particular really felt almost like detective work, reading those <laughs> sources and trying to piece together, like, how does this all work? And what is the story that they're telling? But ultimately, what we see is um, human strife was sabotaging the church in Bithynia. Mm. Hmm. And that's a warning yeah. to us. I mean, think how many churches uh, split over like an argument that might be just an argument between two people. And then suddenly next thing you know, it engulfed a whole church. I mean, you hear stories like this and you always think like, how could this happen? Like, well, this was happening in Bithynia. <laughs> Wow. So you can you can have this sense like this is a, a warning sign to us mm -hmm. as well that we can go in these same type of things ex express themselves in contemporary churches where we let these sins make them, mm -hmm. their way in to the basic life of the congregation. Now, there's also this interesting chapter in that section where you talk about martyrdom and unexpected martyrs, women uh, who like they challenge themselves cultural Christianity. Can you tell us a little about that, particularly in the context of that third century? 
Yeah, so uh, that chapter focuses especially on Perpetua and Felicity, and we have uh, Perpetua's yeah. account of martyrdom, which is really fascinating. So here's a woman's account of her own martyrdom, her journal. Um, somebody else at the end are, adds the account of her martyrdom, because obviously she was not going to write that herself, but we have her prison journal as she is awaiting execution, and she knows what's happening, and she is really just uh, thinking articulately about what it all means. But what's striking is in the Greco-Roman world, uh, women were usually, uh, well, actually always legally under um, control of first the father, but then the husband. And in Perpetua's case, she challenges all of those authorities. And this would have been something that would have been uncomfortable for the church as well. So the whole notion of obey your parents and so on, uh, for women martyrs who reject parental authority, um, and Perpetua's father begs her, like, please denounce your faith and come back home. Uh, so we have this confrontation where it's like, how do you choose in those kinds of situations? And she chooses her faith. But yes, what it sets yeah. her up for, uh, but it sets up this question for the church, like, how do you treat these women? Because they have some, because this gives them an extra um, hoop to jump through that may seem like a, a sinful situation. Mm, because they're violating these kind of boundaries that are there already with their family. Exactly. And those boundaries are also part of the Ten Commandments. I mean, the whole like yeah, sure. children obey your Honor parents. your parents. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is a heavy piece for us to take on. And then you have an, mm -hmm. another, um, okay, obviously I'm just not, I'm not going into detail on every chapter. That's why I want you all to go and get the book, right? <laughs> I want people, to, but there's a, a chat. Augustine is a character, a person in, that, that we owe so much to in Christian theology and interpret, you know, biblical hermeneutics and a variety of areas. But you, in the eighth chapter, um, talk about Christian nationalism. And I'd just love for you to address that a little bit and what you found about Augustine and how you think about what was happening, as you say, at the twilight of the empire. Yeah, so that was one of the chapters that um, originally when I was first starting this book, uh, to write this book, uh, originally at one point I thought that I would write a book about Augustine and his philosophy of history. And maybe one of these days oh. I will, but I really okay. love City of God. But the point that he's making, so City of God is Augustine's response to the most traumatic, the greatest traumatic stressful event of his age for everybody in the Roman Empire. And that is the sack of the city of Rome in 410. Yes. Uh, for, for anyone who, if your Roman history is not fully up to date, uh, what I okay. would say is just imagine the city of Rome has not been sacked since a really, really long time before that, very early in its history, before it was this like world empire of its age. So to the Romans, it was unfathom unfathomable, but also to Roman Christians, just think about it. Up to that point, Christianity had always existed in the context of the Roman empire. And so for Christians, just like for pagans, the sack of Rome came as a shock. And even for Augustine, this includes Augustine himself, and everyone in the Roman Empire, whether pagan or Christian, was asking the question, how could this happen? How did God let this happen? Or how did the pagan gods let this happen? So everyone sure. was wondering about this. And that's what Augustine is writing to respond to, where he's saying, um, 
this is the wrong question to ask. Uh, this is not the city we should love. But the fact that we're so bothered by this, the fact that we all are asking this question shows that we've all made an idol out of this city. And that's where I see this Christian nationalism, where um, if Augustine were here today, uh, I think he would he would understand that because that's exactly what he was fighting against, this idealization of Rome, making it synonymous with Christendom. Right. And, and so it doesn't take too much inspective work to uh, think the connections to the United States, as you're saying, like, oh, we can't imagine a time. And, and you know, you and I are both living in the United States. It's easy to pick that out. It could be another country as well. Just just throw that out there. But as we're thinking about that, you can you can see like there is this period. It's like hard to imagine. Well, the United States is always going to be, you know, it's like the most it's yeah. a dominant world power. And, you know, God has blessed people in the United States and he's going to continue to do it. And it's easy to see the way that, you know, the, the the flag of the United States, you know, gets crossed with the um, Christian flag in some places or or becomes just as important. And there's a way that you want to be patriotic. You want to love your country, love the land that we're in. But you see this, and you describe this, and it's helpful to see Augustine responding to that. I mean, he does this. Tell us a little bit more about how that happens. I mean, he describes the kind of two different types of cities. Uh, I'd love to just get a little insight into how we can think about this for our time and how Augustine can help us. Augustine is very much, we forget sometimes that he's very much a pastor. He is caring for his people. Uh, and what we have to remember in the context of the sack of Rome, he's not only caring for his own people there in Hippo, uh, but he's also welcoming survivors. And book one of the City of God very much reads like a summary of interviews with the survivors right. of the sack of Rome. So we have these people who are just traumatized by what they saw, what they experienced, perhaps um, had loved ones who were killed. Uh, and here they are who escaped uh, the sack of Rome and are trying to figure out how to move on. And he's very much offering that pastoral care. So a lot of times um, with discussions of Christian nationalism, I almost see this like response um, from people who, um, who, see this as a sin, which I do too. But a lot of times there's the response of like, well, just snap out of it. Um, right. And that's not what Augustine is saying. What he is saying is you can mourn for this. Like if you feel like there's a genuine loss, it's okay to mourn for it. Uh, as Christians, we should mourn for suffering of others. Uh, we should mourn for our own suffering. But um, keeping our focus on Jesus, keeping our focus on the a uh, beautiful city that is not here is really yes. helpful in setting theological priorities. And that's what it, where it, uh, what it comes down to is theological priorities. Are we thinking that the United States is the kingdom of God? And right. if you say that it is, then I think you're going to have to do some more explaining. Yes. Yeah. And that, that might be the case that we're um, putting a WWJD uh, mm -hmm. license plate on our golden chariot right like or we were we're taking something else and adapting it in a way that's not connected to what it really is um now you you have some hard stories throughout your book and there so are there some other heroes that maybe we haven't talked about already or is it or is it too much bad news or do you have some heroes here for us in this book 
Well, I think my favorite hero in the book is uh, the pastor whose story uh, you read is in the introduction in part, uh, Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage in the third century. So here's this guy who, uh, who was an adult convert to Christianity. And shortly after uh, converting, he becomes appointed bishop, meaning pastor of this uh, really large church in North Africa, Carthage. Um, and it's a really bad time to be living in the Roman Empire. This is the mid third century, the crisis, but it's also a particularly bad time to be a bishop and meaning responsible for thousands of people depending on you to make good decisions and so on. And to me, uh, I mean, it's always care. Uh, we always have to be careful to make heroes out of ordinary people, um, sure. and yet uh, the writing that he left is so deeply pastoral and kind and loving. Just constantly exhorting his people to keep caring for each other, uh, keep giving to the local church, uh, keep giving for other people. And I think about this. Um, so uh, the sociologist Rodney Stark, when he wrote about the explosion of Christianity in the Roman Empire in the third century, he wrote about how um, it was precisely witnessing kindness, the countercultural, extravagant, lavish kindness of Christians to their neighbors that brought about conversions. And to me, Cyprian very much exemplifies that story. Here's a uh, here's a pastor who tells us stories from his congregation where people were not necessarily they were not any more saintly than, I don't know, the saints at Corinth. But the point is their pastor kept calling them over and over and over, kept exhorting them to do the right thing in caring for each other, in loving each other. And through it all, reminding them, like, remember whose you are. You are God's people. And that makes such a big difference. And it's just really beautiful reading those kinds of stories and realizing like, okay, um, like no pressure on the local pastors, but like, this is on you. This is a okay. huge labor right there. You can make a difference. And it's important to go ahead and call these things out. It's it, it's harder. Um, it's harder to do it. <laughs> I'll say like it's harder to call out the cultural sins that are apparent. And and there actually I'm curious for you, like what were some of those things that you observed? Because uh, some coming from uh, the so former Soviet Union from Israel outside of the Bible Belt. You come into Bible and you see somebody. And it's, it might be easy to pick out for some, but tell us, like, what are some of those things that maybe struck you as surprising? Because you came from an outside perspective, you could see them a little differently. One perhaps would be attitudes towards uh, sexuality, even where mm -hmm. um, just. Uh, on the one hand, you are in the Bible Belt. On on the other hand, people were a lot more, uh, a lot more typical um, of the culture around them in their behavior, and okay. that was something that was difficult even for churches in the area. I think. Yeah, it's interesting how that that can often be the case. It's like this assumption, like, well, that's where I am, and I and I've been in different type of cultural expressions, more some more city urban environments more country environments and there's just this kind of pull to what's going on around you mm -hmm. and it can just seem like well that's what we're gonna do. i mean you highlight in your book too just the way that you know prostitution in certain areas was just that's just what people access i mean i don't know if that's something you could address here just in a second but like people just felt like well this is my culture. This is where I am. It's easier to be pulled back to it. And you could say, oh, that's disappointing. It's so hard to hear that that would have been happening in the early church. But Cyprian and other people were trying to call this out and, and mm -hmm. still having this kind of core 
understanding of what a biblical morality was in that time. And that morality has continued. I don't know if that's an issue that I found helpful. I mean, sad, but also I was glad to see you highlight. I mean, that was the basic culture of the time. And maybe I can even help us understand the New Testament letters as well. Absolutely. So in the Greco-Roman world, uh, we have to keep in mind that while women's sexuality was policed, if you want to call it that, um, there there was an expectation that respectable women um, stayed faithful to their marriage vows. Uh, Girls were married off pretty young, and that was that. Um, But for men, there was no expectation of morality in that regard. So both in the Greek world and in the Roman world. So uh, that's where it was so shocking that Christianity uh, held men to the exact same standard. So when Paul is writing to the Corinthians and is saying like, you guys keep like people still keep going to prostitutes. Well, that's what everybody in the Roman world did. It was very cheap because prostitutes were usually enslaved, which adds a whole another uh, like layer of abuse of you know, human dignity and so yes, on. Yes. When we think about the Roman world, like all of this violence, first of all, uh, people who were enslaved in the Roman world were usually war captives. So that brings us back to like military history. Whenever yes. the Romans went somewhere, conquered people, um, and those people who were enslaved were sold uh, anywhere in the Roman Empire. And a lot of times the women would be sold into brothels. And that provided very cheap prostitutes that were available for any Romans who could, I mean, it was basically the cost of a lunch. Um, And Paul is calling it out very much so saying like, this is wrong. Um, And it's really just eye opening to realize what a difference Christianity made in that regard. But also it makes you realize just what an, what a different expectation it is for marriages. Um, Yes. And it's, it's one of those things we might not have necessarily even thought of reading 1 Corinthians, that when he calls this out, presumably the men he's addressing who were going to prostitutes were married. Yeah, because if, yeah, you're, sure. if you're an adult, you were married. That's So what is going on here? And you yes, get all of this. And it, it, it's a, maybe assumption that our, our society has been impacted by these Christian values more. And, and even when it's not calling them Christian, we I've had um I had on a person who talked about the the way that all throughout history the the testimony to various forms of morality is a part of the Christian witness in itself. It kind of like all traces itself back to those basic ideas that are there. Now I'm interested too. I I saw that you wrote this book in an interested period in world history itself. So tell us how you came about writing this book. I mean, you have academic monographs that are together, academic articles and that type of thing. And you do, you like I, I mentioned earlier that you're the book re- review editor for Current. But like, tell us about how this book came about. I wanted to write something for the church. Uh, with a- academic writing, uh, a lot of times, not a lot of people read it. <laughs> um, I'm sure I'm sure you know that's uh, that's the thing like for a lot of us if you write academic articles uh, or the like it's possible that maybe like 10 people around the world read it and I was yeah. thinking also just um, I just want my time to count uh, and my husband and I would talk a lot about redeeming our time what does it mean so it certainly means spending a lot more time with our kids prioritizing uh, family but it also means making the most of what we do with our writing and just other projects. And it felt like I had 
so I had this idea and I thought this would be a helpful book for the church. And that's what I wanted to do. This is redeeming my time during a pandemic when all of us were trying to figure out what is the meaning of life anyway? Uh, that's right. So yeah, it, 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 did your husband give you, am I right? Like just gave you, you had a little bit of time every day yes. to start writing this and you, and you just, yeah. uh, did the book get done? It was it an hour a day that you had to go, to go write yes. yeah, during the yep. pandemic. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You know, an hour a day can do a lot if you do it every day. That's right. You stack all that together. Well, this is great. Well, Nadia, thank you so much for writing this book and for coming on the podcast. It's, you know, it's a, I think it, you know, we, we have a fair amount of New Testament scholars and, and, and most of them rightly focus on, you know, Greco-Roman history to a certain degree, but even just hearing you talk and, and think about the sources that you're working with on a regular basis really brings some new life to what was happening in early Christianity. I always ask my podcast guest, is there a, my, the name of my podcast is more to story. I want to go deeper into some of these ideas and like why you're thinking about this book. And it's also a theological reason. And it's something that I actually saw highlighted in your book, the same theological foundation is that we need to pursue holiness, like to think about the opportunity to move into a deeper relationship with Jesus. So I think more to story and title of my podcast is there's more than just being saved. Like, like there's, there's more to the Christian faith than that. So, but I also wonder, is there more to the story of Nadia than is typically told? I imagine you'll have a lot of interviews with this book, but uh, is there some hobby that you have or is there, is there more to the story to you? It's always funny when you ask parents of children, like, what is your hobby? It's like, well, spending time with my kids <laughs> pretty much all day, every day. Um, it's, um, I think my hobby really is the writing, um, yes, yes. to be honest. So what we just talked about, that's okay. probably the hobby. Whereas um, we homeschool, so that's kind of, it feels like a full-time job right now. We're at that phase where it is, and it's beautiful. And I hope that they're learning that there's more to this story. And I think uh, I think there is a lot of that, the conversations that are always unpredictable and beautiful. It's uh, raising image bearers is sanctifying in all the all the crazy ways. Every it day. is. Well, I mean, in for in your husband's also a historian. We talked before he is. the yeah. show. So your kids will definitely get more to the story in their homeschool education. Uh, my, my kids, uh, uh, my wife homeschools our kids, and I'm a part of that to a certain degree. But mm -hmm. uh, I know like often they, they know a fair amount about the 19th century and Methodism and the Salvation Army, too. So I imagine your kids are going to have a, a lot of that, too. <laughs> OK, so you said writing's your what, what else are you working? I know you have another book coming out uh, uh, with IVP Academic and a few other things. So tell us about some of the other things we might anticipate from you. So the IVP academic book is titled Priceless, and this is looking at those issues of human dignity. What does it mean that each of us is priceless in God's eyes? And what it started, uh, the idea that started me down that path was seeing a lot of articles over the past couple of years that were uh, in the secular kind of uh, publishing world that were um, kind of looking down on motherhood. That uh, like uh, there was that Bloomberg article that said. Uh, women who don't have kids are happier or something like get wealthier. And sure, sure. it's one of those things like, well, depending on your metrics, you can twist the data to conclude whatever you want. But the real question is why would somebody want to make that argument? And there are all of these jabs that um, essentially say in our society, like motherhood is just not really worthwhile. Um, but what does that mean? So whenever somebody says that, what does it mean a about my life? What and what kind of thing are you implying about my children? Um, but also, yeah, sure. 
how does this fit in the story of the church? And what's fascinating, what I was noticing is a lot of similar language used in the demeaning of life, both um, and human dignity, both in those kinds of articles, but also in the pre-Christian Mediterranean. So a lot of this basically post-Christian discourse on the value of human life looks a lot like pre-Christian discourse on the value of human life. And that's the story I'm telling in that book. Okay. So you're saying like they look the same post. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The church made a difference. Okay. The church is what changed the discourse. So the question is um, how can you possibly come up with the idea that every human being, every human life is precious and priceless. And the only way to get there is through Christianity. Before the early church came up with this, no one in the Greco-Roman world really had that idea. Wow. Interesting. And it's, it's helpful to hear you, you think of that. And as the way you've described it, even thinking about your own kids, like it's challenging raising image bearers, right? Like this language is a part of your own testimony to what's happening. This is beautiful. Well, I'm excited to hear about that book when it comes out. Maybe we can have you on to talk about that as well. Nadia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a real delight. I just want to encourage people to check out this book from Zondervan Cultural Christians and the Early Church. Thank you, Nadia, for coming on. Thank you so much, Andy.